This episode is brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. Are you looking into surcharging? Do you have a tool right now where you can apply a fee on your quotes just to the credit card transactions and compare it with cash discounting? Well, we just recently implemented surcharging at InstantQuoteTool.com. You can now build proposals for flat rate, uh, surcharge, cash discounting, tier pricing, subscription rate pricing, all of that. And the best news is your agents can, with one click of a button, switch back and forth between them, see what the margins look like and what the savings look like with all of those different programs. So if you're an ISO, go over to instantquotetool.com slash podcast and check out our free 30-day trial. No uh, commitment on your part, no payment information, nothing. Just go over there and sign up, start using the tool for 30 days, and see what you think about it. Okay, so today we're gonna talk with James and his wife, Christina, and get a, get a feel for what it's like starting out in this business. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, thanks for having me. Hey, uh, James, maybe just to start off for our, for our listeners, if you can give us an idea of, you know, what you were doing before you got into merchant services and kind of what drew you to this business? Sure. Well, first of all, I have to thank Christina for allowing us to drag her onto the podcast here. So I'm excited to be here. For those of you that don't know, Christina's my wife. And uh, I think if you watch my videos, I've mentioned her many times. But um, yeah, so before this, uh, we had just gotten married. How long were we married when I... A year and a half. A year and a half. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, we had just gotten married. I was actually working for Service Master, uh, which is a division, or it was True Green, a division of Service Master out sure. in the Chicago area. Right. Um, and so I was uh, what they call a regional marketing manager and a regional trainer. Um, and talk about our schedule when I first got married, babe. How, how much did I work when we got married? Well, you left at nine in the morning to drive two hours, and you worked from 11 to nine and got home at 11 at night. Right. So it was wow. like nine in the morning to 11 at night. Five days a week, and then Saturday I worked half day. Yes. So that was our newlywed schedule. Wow, you guys got to spend a lot of time together. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, so I've always been a workaholic, and then uh, Christina said to live with that. Um, But then when we got married, then she was from out here in Pennsylvania. Yes. And so we would come out here to visit on, like, the weekends when you have time, you know. Okay. So you were living in Chicago then? uh, Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So then we, uh, you know, I I loved Pennsylvania, just kind of coming out here and seeing a little bit of a slower paced life compared to my hour and 15 minute commute yes um and uh we thought it might be nice to actually see each other now that we're married you know uh-huh. that, that would be fun so uh we we moved out to pennsylvania and uh and then i don't know how long we were out here before i started the business maybe when we moved you did a different business first and then right. we had a christmas light business where we would decorate homes for christmas Mm-hmm. And when that one ended, he was getting a different and job. And that was in Chicago. That was in Chicago. But we, came, we went back. So the year after we moved here, I actually commuted back, back and forth like nine and a half hours. <sighs> so I would leave Sunday night uh, and drive out there, work Monday through Friday, and then come back. Yeah. And I was out wow. here on the weekend. Since I was out in Chicago all week running that business and then out here. But the thing is, right before that, we had a, I had a real estate company. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that had really kind of just imploded on us with the 2008 crash and all that. Yeah. And so while we were kind of starting this business, we still had the Christmas light business a little bit. And then, w- you know, the uh, real estate company was shutting down. So I was in the process of, you know, very uh, expertly losing $150,000 uh, while I was trying to get this other business going. Oh, nice. So, lots yeah. of fun. Yeah. Sounds like a, sounds like <laughs> a scary prospect. Yes. <laughs> so tell me then, uh, you know, obviously support counts for a lot in this kind of situation. You guys were newlyweds, mm-hmm. uh, starting out a new business. How important 
you know, is the support of having your, you know, having your partner, your wife or your sure. husband support you in, in something like this? Because it's a big undertaking. Well, and I think, too, I think it um, I think for some people it's more important than others. I think if you don't want to get divorced, then it becomes really, really important. Yeah, it's the most important, because if you don't have the support of your spouse, then you don't do it. Yeah. Right, right. And <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. Isn't that, you know? And so. Uh, so, so how, I mean, I, I want to ask this of each of you, you know, like what kind of support are you, are you talking about? I mean, it's not just emotional support. Yeah, I think that um, sometimes the, sometimes the support was just being able to like make it mm-hmm. and survive mm-hmm. when it seemed like yeah. we couldn't. When, when he first started out in the merchant services business, um, he at first thought that it was going to be a side job that would just get him through till he found a different job. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And um, then then he realized that he could make a career out of it. But it was really we had a, probably a whole year where it was mm-hmm. really tough and we couldn't pay our bills and um, support. You have to be willing to um, live with less. And and and, and, and uncertainty, I would imagine. Right. Yes. I mean, it's not just living with less, but sort of not totally certain of where the rent's going to come from next month right or not knowing um i I think that um you can i always said that james was the one who was so optimistic he would you know and i was like the realistic Mm. person keeping him (laughs) on the ground right (laughs) (laughs) but um i mean some people wouldn't be willing to not be able to pay a bill Um, my my family was always about paying all your bills on time sure and when we were in that stage of starting the business, that was impossible. We couldn't pay right. all of our bills on time. And and then you just, you have to be willing to sacrifice. Yeah. Um, well, and it's like, I, like we were talking about before the interview that, you know, there's never been, I don't remember there ever being a moment in my life where I doubted that I was going to be a multimillionaire. And that can be actually, that sounds really fun and exciting, but for your spouse, that can be super annoying. Oh, yeah. When you're making like, you know, a couple hundred dollars in a week and you're trying to figure out how to pay the mortgage and Mm -hmm. you're like, well, that's okay, babe, because in 10 years, I'm going to be super rich. (laughs) Right, right. You know, and so I think it's like respecting, I think you have to respect that that your spouse uh, has a different reality than you do and a different perception. And I always respected that Christina was the, well, I didn't always respect it. Sometimes it was annoying <laughs> and you got annoyed with me. But but generally speaking, we try to respect each other's different viewpoints. And also, I would imagine, except that, okay, James, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. I'm nervous, but I have to believe in him. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. because if, if there's a doubt, I mean, right. that kind of... You because you know you're you're a unit, right? Yeah. So yeah. if right. one half of the unit has some doubt, that's certainly going to seep over to to the sure. other, right? And then we yeah. we definitely had our doubts along the way. I would yeah. say. I mean, you know. Well, for me, that I feel like there were a lot of times where I w- would have just rather made enough to get by, th- and just been okay, like to settle and like right. you know have security, mm-hmm. than to risk it to down the road be successful right sometimes that's a really scary risk to take and and again it's like you know before before this phase of our life you know i had the real estate company that was not you know that was crashing and burning but at the same time you know before this i was working a job with a seventy thousand a year salary sure plus bonuses company car company gas card paid vacation and Mm -hmm. so we knew you know the difficult thing is when you're building a business where you know all we have to do is make a decision and that decision is i'm going to go get a job and then problem solved Right, right. But to not make that decision for years and years, like, mm-hmm. oh, really, really does great on you after a while. Did yeah. you did you put it did you find yourself sort of like putting some um, 
some limits on like okay if 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 we don't get to x by you know next year and this time (laughs) very often there were a lot of times where i said okay we have to set a if by may we can't pay our bills you know then we need to just go get jobs or right or by this certain time because i'm living in a cardboard box (laughs) (laughs) i feel like we just learned a lot of lessons in patience too because i know that there were a lot of times where i would pray for a certain amount of money to come in and it seemed like God provided our needs, but it wasn't ever when I thought it would be. Right. You know, right. right. And things would be paid later. And I would think we can't survive if we don't make this amount. And it would be a little bit later. Right. I don't know. So I feel like. Yeah. I think he was just teaching us lessons along the way. But and I think we also, I, I know for me personally, like the biggest thing going through that for me is I learned a lot of humility. Mm-hmm. You know, before that experience, if somebody told me, you know, oh, I wasn't able to pay my bills or something, I would just think, oh, lazy bum. Right. Go work. Right. After that experience, when people would say that, I'd be like, I know exactly what you're going through. Can I help? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a different, you have yeah. a different perspective, I think, on life. Yeah. Because you know. we, we, our car got repossessed and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never. There's just... moments that you always remember. Like, I always remember the moment where. You know, I heard that beeping noise. <laughs> and the truck and, backing up. <laughs> and me and Christina oh. come to the window, the second story. We're in this little tiny house, and you look down, and we see our car. They're hooking our car up oh. to tow it away. You know, and it's in front of all your neighbors. You know, that's just not a, that's not a good experience. No, no, that's 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 not. But fun. you know, and that's interesting. I mean, really, kind of going back to that moment, I don't remember exactly what Christina said, but something to the effect of she kind of laughed a little bit. Yeah. What was that? I can't really. I just knew that we would be okay. Right. And um. We went and got, we ran outside to get our things out of the car. But, <laughs> but right. I just remember that a lot of times, um, the difficult times we went through starting our business is what helped us to be closer together because sure. we, were, we were going through it together. Right. It was, right. Um, we would take something back to Walmart and then use the Walmart c- card right. store credit to go buy. I remember one time we bought groceries mm-hmm. and we had so much fun trying to figure out how much could we get for $13. <laughs> and right. Seriously. There's and some I, ramen noodles involved, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. TV dinners. But, yeah. um, but I feel like we learned a lot in that time of like who your true friends are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we learned how to support each other when it was really, really difficult. Right. And we learned... And that you could get, and then you that you could make it. Yes, right? yeah, right. and that you can survive on a lot less than you think you can. <laughs> sure. And and when yeah. you have the right person and you get along so well, like we always had a good relationship, even when right. our circumstances were bad. And I right. think that was what not helped to say, us. Not to say we didn't have a few. Uh, disagreements <laughs> along the way there well right. of course that's just <laughs> yeah. you know, i would have been worried if you said you had no disagreement right yeah. no 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 that's impossible and i think i think too maybe people get the wrong idea of like you know maybe they didn't see a marriage growing up that was you know a certain way but like right there is there's no you see these couples that you think oh they're that's a perfect couple they never argue they never fight no 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 that's not reality you like, just don't see it right yeah. and, I, and i think you have to i think it's it's important that you do because like for me she was always trying to kind of drag me out of myself because like i would just want to like you know, when things are difficult, my natural reaction is to kind of crawl into a shell mm-hmm. and just like, I just am going to deal with this. But I had to realize that Christina wanted to be in it with me. And, and I think as long as she felt like she was a part of it mm-hmm. and I wasn't holding things back and I wasn't yeah. trying right. to hide, you know, that this bill was late. Yeah. That was the thing earlier in our marriage. Our first talk year, about that. I said, I remember saying one time that it took me almost a year of marriage to get James to fight with me. Because, like, my right. family True. was always True. very um, vocal. Like, we talked things out. Right. And James was always more, you know, reserved, and he didn't want me to know if something was going wrong. And for the first year, I would try and try to—finally, I felt like 
okay, we can really be honest. You have to be able to mm-hmm. really be honest with each other and yeah. know that you can tell the, the person that you're with, you can tell them the bad news mm-hmm. and they're going to be able to take it. Right. Um, and hiding and, things always does. It, it just yeah, complicates it. It right? does. It, it does. really does. Yeah. So you, I think you have to trust each other with the, the difficulty when you're starting a business. So what about, what about outside interests? I, it, it would strike me that, you know, you have to also, you're focused on your work, you're focused sure. on building this business, but there has to be something, something, else. something else, right? What we would do, um, sometimes when we were super broke and, it, and our rent was late, we would get in the car and drive around and look at um, really nice houses. We'd go to uh-huh. like the fanciest subdivision that we could find and we would just drive around and, and say like, okay, someday where do we want to live? And we would try to pick mm-hmm. out a house or, um, or we would make $25 or $100 from a sale right. and we would go out to eat mm-hmm. and go have a date night instead right. of putting that that wasn't going to pay our rent anyway sure and we would just make sure that like sometimes we could feel normal and just spend some money on our on us and our relationship so yeah i think it's easy to say that you know your relationship your marriage is your top priority um, but I think very few people it really is. Sure. Yeah. The, the truth is that other things are their top priority. And so I think when you actually are like, you know, your marriage is your top priority, then sometimes that means your marriage is actually more important than your mortgage or your mm-hmm. rent or the electric bill. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your marriage is even, you know, I think also, I think your marriage has to be, I think at the core, I don't think Christina ever doubted that if I actually felt like the business was going to break us up, I would have gone and gotten a job. Sure. And we had these talks several times where it was like i was like how are you because like you know if this is going to be like if this is game over then i'll go get a job and i can pursue my dreams again in five years you know like it takes a long time to get where you want to go anyway you're not going to make it in a year anyway right so sometimes there's patience but i mean she stuck with me and allowed me to kind of keep moving forward to where i could get and I think point, the so. one thing that did help, though, was that James would constantly reaffirm to me that because I was um, believing in him and sticking with him when it was difficult, that I was actually helping him to succeed. Sure. Because um, that, for me, made me more patient and understanding when he would say, I couldn't do this if you wouldn't stay with me. And most people wouldn't have stayed with me when we when right. we had been struggling so long. Sure. Just to reaffirm to your spouse, if your business is struggling and you're having a hard time get, getting going in merchant services, that like t- tell that person that you appreciate them for going through that difficult time with you because mm-hmm. they might just be feeling like, you know, neglected. Sure. Right. And, um, sure. and just that um, if if you know that they're struggling, you, you do need to put them first. Mm-hmm. And there have been so many times that I was going through something and James would drop the work drop what he was doing to come and be with me i know just and this Mm -hmm. is more recent but um i had to go to the hospital after our baby was born i had super high blood pressure and and for six hours he sat with me in the emergency room Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he was a it was a busy day for him but he stopped what he was doing to come because you got to make sure that you put your put your spouse first yeah especially in in situation maybe not in terms of going out to get the milk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. But, you right. know, sitting by her, holding her hand sure. when she's sick or in labor or something yeah. like that. Yeah. That really, that really well, And I think, I think, too, for somebody who's really optimistic, which describes a lot of entrepreneurs and salespeople, sure. sometimes you have to be willing to sit at home and be sad with your spouse. Yeah. 
because exactly. it's not fun. And like, you know, even for somebody like me, I'm probably the most compartmentalized person that I know. <laughs> so I can literally be like everything around me is crashing and burning, but mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm going right. to go out here and sell or do whatever. But at the same time, recognizing that, you know, your spouse maybe doesn't share your unbounded optimism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you might need to like sit and like, you know, just hold them or watch a TV show or right. just kind of be there and like, hey, you know what? Life is really tough right now. Let's just enjoy each other tonight. You know what and I mean? And that's really important. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me, I have one more question. Sure. I really, I'm, I think a lot of folks might be interested in this. If you could change anything, like it's what, been 10 years now, basically, right? right? right. Looking back over that 10 sure. years, what, what, if anything, would you change? Uh, you know, and I, I think from the macro level, I would say I wouldn't change anything as far as, you know, zooming out and going like, hey, you know, like yeah. it, it all worked out and we're still close and we have a happy marriage and kids mm-hmm. and and we're doing well. And so, you know, from a macro level, I'm blessed and I wouldn't change anything. Sure. Obviously, if I could really go back, um, you know, the biggest thing to me is, you know, I had this mentality of like. I always wanted to get to the next level because, again, to me, I was looking at it as millionaire or nothing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the thing I, I think I didn't understand at the time is I was very impatient, and I thought, yeah, you know, Christina will tell you, every time I started a new thing, this is going to be the thing, yeah. right? Six yeah. months, a year from now, I give her financial projections, literally, like, look time. at this. <laughs> look right, at how much right. money we're going to make in a year. No, it, it never works like that. You know, it just, you know, I love what Tony Robbins says. He says that people always drastically overestimate what they can accomplish in one year and they always drastically underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, for me, like to be really specific for merchant services reps, that meant I'd get a merchant services portfolio of 10,000 a month and I would sell it so then I would take the money and reinvest it in the next business sure. so I could build the ISO and then I could start the technology company and then I could do this and do that and, you know, start the new marketing campaign. And so I think early on, it took me like five years or so, at least maybe six to kind of start to figure out that like this is going to take a while. And so if I could go back, you know, I could have gotten to where I am today without making it quite so rough on my family of like always leveraging the business. Like, you know, when you get to the point where you're making, you know, $100,000 a year, try not to go back to 30 thousand right like keep making a hundred thousand a year and find another way to do it you know what i mean right right. um so i don't know that i would change that and also debt i definitely would not when we started an iso not getting too specific but um you know we had an iso and and we ended up borrowing i want to say nine hundred thousand i think to pull that off at one point i was burning sixty thousand dollars a month on that business from upfront bonus money and and equipment and all that and you know there's a weird thing about debt you have to pay it back yeah (laughs) yeah And, uh, you know, and that and, you know, so there was a long period in our business where really we should have been doing incredibly well because our business was so profitable. But every single penny was going to pay back this debt. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I would have done that differently. I would have, you know, built that a little bit slower, less debt. I don't know. I would say trust your gut more if you could go back because there were times Mm. where we had we just had a feeling about something Mm -hmm. and we didn't go with it because it just didn't make sense. Uh And later on down the road. You we would back. see what ha- hindsight is twenty twenty, but sure. we would talk and and uh, James would say, "What stuff oh, are you thinking of?" Like it's like curiosity. I'm, like, well, things like hiring, like people, hiring, hiring someone, or we would have this gut feeling like, "Oh, this isn't working out," and yeah. but we just try to make it keep make working, it go. right? And, or like um, partnerships, yeah. yeah, yeah, different things, things like, that. like that where we realize later, or even just a business idea of like something that we wanted to try and it. Yeah. I think the other thing too, one of the things I just thought of when you were saying that is like, uh, how long was it until I was partnered with your brother? (sighs) That was like six years in or something. Yeah. Like, I think a really big change for me is like, if I could go back, I would have had a business partner from the beginning. Earlier. Because Mm -hmm. you need, because it's like, you know, for Christina, she's very good at 
um, like she said, keeping me grounded. And like if I have an idea saying like that's not a good idea or something. Right, right. But at the same time, she doesn't have the context of the business all the time. She's not involved day to day. And once I had a partner, which my first partner was actually her brother, who okay. was an incredibly talented young man that really was just awesome. Um, and now I have Jack, uh, who you know, nobody even knows about on my podcast, but it's my business partner behind the scenes. Um, and like to me, having a business partner that's willing to say that's a stupid idea right. or don't do that or let's talk through this. Mm-hmm. For me, at least personally, that made like a massive, massive Being difference. able to talk to somebody who was invested but not personally invested. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. So it's like Christina to me has always been my ultimate like kind of counselor with stuff of like the mm-hmm. bigger decisions of like do I do I even do I bring on this partner or that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but I think day to day it helps me so much to have somebody that's willing to like challenge my ideas sure. on the specifics that maybe Christina isn't as aware of. You know, I would say that um, the people that are trying to run a merchant services business should trust their like get the advice of their spouse and when they mm-hmm. w- or any business like if you talk to your spouse about an idea and they think that it sounds like a bad idea or you know right. to I know that we had several times where we talked about something and then later on we would say oh I wish we <laughs> right wouldn't have done it that way I'm trying to I can't think of like these specific ones but I do uh, there, I know there's three or four times where like Christina would say like I'd be like hey I'm gonna do this and Christina's like oh that that just doesn't sound like a good idea. And I'd be like, why not? And she's like, I, I don't know. It just doesn't sound like a good idea. Just I don't, my gut, right? I, I just yeah. don't know. And I'd be like, well, then I'm just going to do it. You know, you don't have a good reason. I'll just, and then it's like, you know, three, four months later and like $30,000 lost. You know, I'm like, oh, that was really stupid. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I, yeah, I think listening so trust to your gut. gut. Yes. Yeah. And trust exactly. your partner's gut too. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, well, well, I didn't, I didn't know we would ever do an interview like this. This has really been, been kind of fun and interesting. It has. I Thank you, Christina. Thank you for having me. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Electronic payments are growing at a decent clip. Unfortunately, those rates are being dwarfed by growing fraud rates. A new report from the Federal Reserve reveals that between 2012 and 2015, Total non-cash payments, that is ACH, card, and check payments, grew by 12% from just over $161 trillion to just over $180 trillion. Wow. Pretty amazing, right? Yeah. During that same three-year period, however, frauds involving non-cash payments grew by a whopping 37%, from $6.1 billion to $8.3 billion, and nearly two-thirds of that total involve credit and debit card frauds. Wow, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I realize this data can be can seem a bit dated, but let me explain. The Fed is the only organization in the U.S. to perform comprehensive studies of payments, preferences, and transactions. It undertakes a massive data collection effort every three years and spends the intervening years analyzing and reporting on that data. The report I'm referencing now was published in October and the analysis points to some noteworthy trends, such as the rationale for EMV cards and terminals, the case for PIN authorizations, and the continued resiliency of checks. Now, between 2012 and 2015, credit and debit card frauds grew, both in terms of sheer numbers of frauds and total losses. And individually, losses to fraud in these these payment types Exceeded, exceeded those due to either ACH or ke- check frauds. Credit and debit frauds combined totaled $6.46 billion in 2015. Wow, that's a big number. That's a huge number. 
Now, the Fed's data, which largely reflects fraud experiences prior to the October 2015 start of the EMV liability shift, found the highest rates of credit card frauds in 2015 were in card present transactions, 14.27 basis points by value of losses and 7.32 basis points by number of fraudulent transactions. These are represent increases of 5.34 basis points and 3.41 basis points, respectively, over card present fraud rates for 2012, the Fed said. Now, the value and number of card not present credit card fraud stayed relatively constant between 2012 and 2015. Really? Yeah. Interesting, right? Very interesting. On the other hand, debit card frauds dominated the CNP numbers in 2015 representing 16.31 basis points by value and 16.73 basis points by number. So what does that mean? I don't understand that stat. Okay, so, in, and, and in fact, I, I kind of thought you might ask me this question. Yeah, yeah. So it's really hard to think about it in numbers, but you you know, basically it's like, okay, so 16 basis points is... Of six, what? Of, of the value. Okay, so the value, so if you have, you know... If the value of the transactions that are fraudulent are a hundred, right? So now it's going to be a hundred. So it's a buck sixty on a hundred. A buck buck sixteen on a hundred. Or buck sixteen on a hundred. So you're saying for every hundred dollars that was processed in sixteen bucks of it was fraud. Or, or but not not sixteen, a buck sixty. A buck sixty. Right, right. A buck sixty. Wow, no, that's actually a pretty big number then. That is, you know, I mean, hmm. think about it. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought that. It's I mean, so- I, th- I actually thought that that's what it meant. Right. But then it was such a high number, I didn't think it could mean that. Yeah, I know, and that's why I think it was so surprising. So hold on, go back to that. What's that last page that the stat you had, the one you already put down there? So the so on the card present, what was it? Five or fourteen twenty-seven. Fourteen point twenty-seven. So a buck forty-two. So out of every hundred dollars in the U.S. that is spent, right, there is a dollar. Uh, out of every hundred dollars that is spent f- using a credit card, right, uh, in person here, right, right. Is that what this is, right, in person credit card, one dollar and forty three cents roughly is uh, fraudulent. Is a fraudulent issue? Is that what it's saying? Well, no, because it's because one dollar would be. Actually, no, it's wrong. Because one dollar would be one percent. Would be one percent. This is actually fourteen, 14 cents. cents. Oh, okay. There hundred. we go. I was there like, we go. Yeah, I don't know. Something's like, okay. Yeah, I got it. Now. Got it now. Okay. All right. So let's so let's restate. All right. Okay. So for card present credit card transactions, right? For every hundred dollars that's spent, fourteen cents is fraud. Is fraud. And then if you went to the card not present. present. It was, was 16, 16 cents, cents out of every hundred dollars. Out of every so still dollars. A, still a significant number. It's still a significant number when you right. think that it's you know that's money lost. Right, and when you start to look at out of every you know million out of every billion, you know then, then, then the numbers it really start to really starts, yeah, then the numbers yeah. add up. And so okay, that's why when we're <laughs> thinking about tri- hundreds of trillions of dollars of transactions, right, right. we're running up billions of dollars got it, of got fraud. It, got it. Okay. okay, now I'm on the same page with you. I just had to get those numbers. No, figured no, out. And, and I figured all of our other listeners were like me, going, "Wait a minute." What? I know, and it's funny because when I was when I was <laughs> reviewing reviewing my notes, I said to myself, "I know James is going to ask me this question now. Let me get this because <laughs> nice. it is. It's hard when you start yeah, talking those kind of numbers that. and yeah. how do you." visualize it yeah okay but the point is of course is that pin um i mean excuse me that the the card not present transactions are clearly having issues having issues yeah okay you know and and uh, not surprisingly frauds associated with pin authenticated transactions 
Okay. Which of course is in or the lower, right? Are much lower. Okay. Um, like three point nine basis points. Oh wow! So like a third. Yeah. Not even a third. Not yeah. even a third. Okay. Right. So because four, so sure. it's rounded up to four, and we had fourteen. So right. Right. It's almost. Hmm. You know. Sure. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a fairly it's still a fairly substantial number. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one other thing too I'd have to point out here because I think a lot of people would look at these numbers and think. You know, well, fraud then isn't a big deal because it's only this amount. But the thing you got to look at is when you look at the total processing volume that's in the trillions. Right. That's revenue. Right. That's not profit. That's right. revenue. Revenue and profit comes out of that. Right. But when you look at fraud, that's loss. Right. That's not. That that's not. Well, then no, no, no. A hundred percent of that fraud, somebody it's lost that right money. Right off the top. Right. Somebody, well, actually, it's coming right off the bottom. Right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Somebody, somebody actually, there is a business out there, that 14 cents out of that 100, there's a business out there that actually lost all 14 cents. Yes. Versus At, the $100, well, that's just $100 in revenue. That's not, they could have made a dollar on that. On that and, and of that dollar, they lost 14, 14 cents. Exactly, right. You so, know, okay. Which is really, yeah. and, and of course, it's not surprising that, you know, almost exclusively the pin stuff is debit. Well, of course. Right. Of course, right? Because we're not doing chip and pin in this country. Right, exactly. Right. So um, I wonder what those numbers do look like in Canada when where they're doing chip and pin. You know, and you know what I mean? they, and I'm they sure have the fraud numbers are really low. Oh, they have and they've shown that. I know I've seen numbers yeah. in, in Europe where it's like, you know, ten basis points if, right. if that, you know. But right, they've been right. doing it a much longer time as well. Right. Sure. So um, but overall the average value of fraudulent and non fraudulent card not present transactions in twenty fifteen were close to ninety five Dollars and a hundred and nine dollars, respectively. So ninety-five for the card present. Okay. Hundred and nine dollars for the card not present. Okay. Okay. In contrast, the average value of a card present transaction, okay, mm-hmm. was one hundred and seventeen dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the average fraud. Uh, excuse me. Okay, hold on. Let me back this up. The one hundred and seventeen. Mm-hmm. Was the average fraud transaction for a card present? Present, okay. Right. Whereas the average non-fraudulent transaction was like fifty. Was fifty. Yeah, that makes sense. So, in other words, if if I'm gonna if I'm gonna steal somebody's information or, or I'm gonna, whatever, I'm gonna make a big purchase. Right. I'm not gonna go buy buy groceries. Like no. I'm gonna go buy like a stereo. Yeah. Right. Or sure something like that sure. you know so but but still i mean you have to look at that so right you know right you're you're taking in good transactions at 50 mm-hmm. bucks but when that bad transaction hits right it's going to be a big one it's going to be and, and also i guess that also has a lot of implications of business type too right because sure. certain business types where you know if you're a pizza shop you're probably not as worried about fraud right. as if you are a furniture store exactly you know right right yeah. uh, uh, another i think a perfect example is like a, a cvs or a drugstore right? right they're not as worried about you're it. not going to mess mess with them because you got to go get your prescriptions n- right. again right sure so anyway what does this all portend on the fed's data com- combined with merging emerging market trends i suspect could pretend some interesting changes in the card payments mix first dmv uh the fed did some follow-up research on card frauds in 2016 which was following the emv liability mm-hmm. shift and what it found was that in card presence scenarios Fraud rates went way down for both credit and debit cards, while CNP CNP frauds Mm -hmm. went way up. Sure. Dollars lost to in-person fraud were $2.91 billion in 2016. Um, 
that was down from $3.68 billion in 2015. So that's mm. a pretty substantial yeah. fall. That's a big move, sure. You know? Meanwhile, dollars lost to card not present frauds rose by over a billion dollars from $3.4 billion in 2015 to $4.57 billion in 2016. Hmm. That's a huge yeah. jump. And, of course, as everybody expected it to happen. Sure. Because the cards were going to shift. And, 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 you know, the Fed itself attributed uh, the, the uh, change to um, growing chip card adoption. Um, and according to the Fed, o- over a fourth of all in-person card payments were authenticated by chip in 2016 compared to just 3% in 2015. Wow, that's big. And I wonder what that is now. I would think 2018, that number is going to be at least actually, half. I, I actually, I have some other numbers okay, on that. Okay, good. Um, yeah. Let me see. I think they're right here yeah, in a we'll minute. Get to it. Yeah. yeah. So I also wanted to bring in the National Retail Federation, which uh, released a report in November stating that fraud remains a top concern for retailers despite EMV. And not surprisingly, those concerns center on card not present fraud. The bottom line, NRF said, is that retailers want better authentication of purchases no matter what the channel. Think in terms of pins and biometrics. Sure. And I suspect we'll see a growing trend towards pin authentication of both credit and debit cards. Growing consumer popularity of debit cards. Several uh, reports suggest debit cards enjoy top-of-wallet status with an increasing number of consumers. Combined with the potential to lower their cost of acceptance, in the case of debit cards... Sure. Um, as well as growing concerns about fraud are going to prompt more merchants to consider installing pin pits. Yeah. I really think that's going to happen. Sure. You know, pin pins aren't just good for authorizing debit cards either. You know, as the, as the NRF said, um, found 95% of the retailers that they surveyed believe that requiring pins, even for EMV credit card transactions, improves security. And 92% said they would implement PIN authorization for EMD cards if we're, that were made available. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, as we noted, uh, ch- chip and PIN is very widespread already. Oh, yeah. Almost everybody that's implemented EMV has done it with chip and PIN. Except for the U.S. Right. Right. So I wanted to just finish off with a few ch- words about ACH and check frauds since, sure. since that came to it. As I mentioned at the start, check and ACH frauds are being dwarfed by card frauds. The number of ACH frauds fell from 5% of all non-cash payments, payment frauds in 2012, to 1.3% in 2015. Check frauds, meanwhile, fell from 18.2% of all non-cash payment frauds in 2012 to just 8.6% in 2015. Hmm. In 2015, banks reported just uh, excuse me, $710 million dollars in check fraud losses compared to 1.1 billion three mm. years earlier. Now some of this reduction in check fraud may reflect declining check usage. But as, I, but as I've noted in past in the past businesses still write a lot of checks and businesses particularly large companies employ sophisticated fraud detection tools like positive pay that allow them to review and approve checks before they get paid. Another reason for declining check fraud, I think, is um, the growing popularity of services like remote and mobile deposit. Yeah. Which, when combined with the near universal adoption of image check clearing, means it's now possible to clear checks in a day or less. Right. And shorter collection cycles make it a whole lot tougher for fraudsters to game the system. Sure. Now, to back up just for a second, because I did realize that I sometimes I forget what I write for this and what I write for the green sheet. But I did see some stats yesterday that said, now Visa's saying 
80% of all the transactions were EMV. Were EMV. In, in 2018. In, 2000, in 2017, as of the end of 2017. Really? December of 17. Now, I think wow. those numbers are a little that optimistic. That seems high because there's so many of the big chains that still don't even have it yet. Exactly. And that I, seems high. I thought that was a little high. Now, I mean, for 2018, I could see it being 70%, maybe 80, but yeah. Now, another or? number I saw, and I believe this was from Forrester, was uh, 80% for the very largest retailers, you know, the Walmarts and, sure, and so forth, the sure. big box guys. But the small fries were yeah. still around 70%. Yeah. Which is still a high number when it you is. think it, about it, it. The change happened pretty quickly. Yeah. I yeah. mean, when you consider that it was 3% in 2015, mm -hmm. yeah. and now we are probably in the 70 to 80% range. So after your research, Patty, do you see the U.S. market uh, five years from now, let's say, do you see it shifting to chip and pin yeah, over I the next I five do. years? I think, I think that's going to happen. That I would think be really interesting to see because, and, and you know, for those listening, you know, two, well, two things to me that are big takeaways. One is... Um, our industry just doesn't talk about fraud very much. When I say that, I mean merchant sales reps. Right, of course not. Merchant sales doesn't talk about fraud very much, and they really should. They should. Because it's something where, to me, I mean, you know, one of the primary, when you're selling people, one of the primary emotions is security. Right. You, you know, people want to feel safe. Right. And so if you could start talking about the stats that you gave today and kind of make a presentation out of that. Exactly. That would be pretty compelling. Look look at the money that you potentially could be losing. Exactly. And right. and and all it's going to take, I mean, this is one of the things, if I was out selling right mm -hmm. now, I'd be getting all of my guys to install pin pin pad. Absolutely, and say, hey, this is coming. You might as well get it. You can get us get it now before the rush, right. and you're just protecting yourself a little Absolutely. bit more. Yeah, sure. And so that to me, it's interesting that it's it's a uh, what was that survey thing you were telling me about? How it's like the the number one concern of merchants or right. something, right? It was right. It was about number fraud. from the NRF and the and right. Forrester, right? Right. So it was number one on their mind of merchants is is fraud, and, and it took and it took second place to cost of acceptance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought yes. was very interesting. And so that's interesting to me. And I think, too, I think people are more concerned about kind of like catastrophic fraud, too. Right. Like, like the, they don't the big want data breach. Exactly. Right? That's right. what they're, I think, really worried about. And sure. Even smaller merchants, like they want to make sure that it's secure and everything's being done right. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, whereas in our industry, I feel like, you know, <clears throat> the biggest security thing we have is PCI, which everybody basically avoids talking about right. to the merchant or they just charge them the non-compliance fee or something. Right. So I think that, uh, to me, I think that's that's just really interesting. I feel like that, the, you know, these agents need to be able to, you know, kind of focus on that more. Right. And and see, Because you know, it's part of service. I mean, you're serving right. the merchant. You want right. to make the merchant make more money because if right. they make more money, you make, make more, more money. money. Right. If they're going to be pummeled with fraud... Um, they're not going to be very happy. They're not going to be happy customers. Yeah. Well, and then I think the second thing is just chip and pen. Right. To kind of keep an eye on that. And the reason it wasn't implemented in the U.S. is because the U.S. merchants, I remember reading articles about this, they were already so upset. They were. That the cost is enormous just to implement EMV. Right. But then it's like, okay, now if I'm a restaurant, I literally have to have a chip and pen. You know, I have to for have a every mobile server. unit for every server. Right. And so the costs start to kind of go up. Uh, we have an upcoming episode where we're going to be talking uh, to a guy named Josh that has a really interesting take on that for fuel stations, which uh -huh. have a really big cost to EMV. Right. And so there's some different business types where they had a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like what you're telling me is probably even with that resistance over the next five years, we're going to start to see chip and pin most likely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's good. And I think we're, I personally think we're going to have the, what's going to start the gradual migration is more debit. Yeah, more debit. You know, they get more comfortable. Hey, listen, if I put sure. a if I put a a pin pad in here, I can accept pin debit, mm -hmm. and that's going to lower my cost of acceptance. Right. Once that's in place, yeah, it only takes some minor programming to 
to implement that for credit cards. Good stuff today, Patty. Very interesting. Great. Thanks. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Well, you know, Patty, one of the big debates I get from salespeople as I'm talking to them is about cash discounting or... Uh, traditional processing when you're doing the pitch right right and how to pitch that and um, today I thought what I would do is try to provide some really good value today because this is a question I've gotten like I don't know 50 times in the last month um, so I thought why not just go ahead and share with everybody for free um, the pitch that I've been telling my consulting clients and and agents that pay us for our programs that and sounds stuff. like a great idea so I first of all you need to understand the survey pitch so um, you know, one of the most powerful things you can do when you walk into a merchant location is that you can present yourself as some semblance of conducting a survey. Mm-hmm. Okay. So sure. instead of walking in and saying, hi, I'm James Shepard. I'm here to sell credit card processing. Right. Instead of that, you know, you can walk in and say one of two things. If you're actually new to the industry, be honest and say, hi, I'm James Shepard. I'm just thinking of starting a new business here uh-huh. in the market. And I just want to make sure that the business I'm starting is a good fit for this market. And so I have three questions in a survey, a three-question survey that I'm just asking local business owners just so I can get a little bit of a read on the market. Do you have a minute to answer these three questions? Okay, so that's what I've been doing. Just a curious, mm-hmm. face-to-face. Face-to-face. Okay. Also on the phone, though. You could do this on the you phone do, as well. Yeah, but, it, but I would think that face-to-face yes. would be a little bit What more. I just said, that works better face-to-face, definitely. Sure, sure. Um, then the second option is that you can do it as you're introducing a new service. So let's say that you are offering cash discounting, right? Mm-hmm. So you could go in and say... You know, hi, my name is James Shepard. Um, I've been in this area for a long time, which is true for me. You know, right. and I've, I've been, you know, have this business. Um, I have a company that provides business solutions. So you got to be careful here. We don't want to say credit card processing. That's right. going to turn them off instantly, sure, right? Sure, sure. I provide business solutions, and we are actually rolling out a new service. And so what we're doing right now is we're trying to gather market data. Uh-huh. And we just have a really quick, it takes like a minute, just three quick questions for you because we're trying to identify if this service is going to be a good fit for the Altoona market, for the Orlando market, wherever you're at. Wherever, sure. Right? Um, do you have just a couple minutes to answer these three questions for me? So usually they'll say, yes, I do have time for that. You're going to get maybe 50 to 60% will say yes to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, if you say that and the person's not the owner, you don't have to ask for the manager. They will say, oh, well, I can't I can't take the survey. Let me go find Bill. Right. So sure. instead of asking is the manager here and they're right. going to say no. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so they get you past the gatekeeper pretty easily. So anyway, you, you have these three questions. So what are the three questions? The three questions are really simple. The first one is um, the first thing I want to find out, Mr. Jones, is have you heard about this new service? Um, so you might have heard of it as either surcharging or cash discounting. But the concept is basically pretty simple. It's that rather than you paying for credit card processing fees, we're passing a very tiny percentage on to each of your customers. And so they're absorbing that cost as part of the price of the product. Uh-huh. And when they pay cash, they get a discount. Um, have you heard of that at all? And what are your thoughts? And so 
then what they're going to do is most of the people actually depends on the market you're in. Right. But honestly, most of the time they're going to say no. They're going to say, uh, no, I haven't heard of that. Or, or they might say, well, I heard something about it. Or well, it sounds like an interesting thing, but yes. I don't know much about it. Exactly. Right. And also, the, a lot of you're going to find about half the time it's going to be followed by a negative response. They're going to say, uh, no, I haven't heard of it, but boy, that, that doesn't sound like something I'd want to do. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, it's so interesting that you say that, you know, because really, even six months or a year ago, I was so skeptical about it myself because I thought, you know, yeah, it sounds great, of course, to save all this money, but at the same time, I don't want to, you know, if I upset my 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 clients' customers, right. they're not going to be very happy with me. And so sure. I didn't roll it out. And so why am I rolling it out now? Well, here's the thing. You know, after looking at all the data and everything, we found that about 95% of merchants that do the cash discounts um, or surcharge, if that's what you're selling, uh, 95% of the merchants that pass on this cost, the consumers actually don't care. Right. And they end up just continuing forward with it. And so as I've seen this data playing out in our market, as I've seen other businesses doing it, um, I've realized that, wow, this is a, this is a really good program. The problem, of course, is, you know, what if you're in that 5% and it, you know, it doesn't work? And so there's still some issues with it. But anyway, thanks for that information. Here's my next question. So see, the, the, the survey allows you to just keep moving forward. So you say, my next question for you is, um, what is your, we're trying to gauge the impact on our market. So what is your total processing volume? If you looked at Visa, MasterCard, Discover, Amex, Pin Debit, you know, is it 10000 a month, 20000 a month, 30000 a month? Roughly, what's the total volume? Now, you have to say it pretty much exactly like I just said it to get them to answer that question. If you don't... Yeah, because I would imagine that could be... There, if you're like, what is your total processing volume? They're like, well, I don't want to share that with you. Right. But if you say, what's roughly your processing volume? 10000 20000 you have to give them options, right? Right, sure. So then they'll usually tell you. Um, and they'll say, oh, it's about you know X. Now, uh, at this point in our pitch, and again, instantquotetool.com is the sponsor of the podcast episode today anyway, so I can. This, I thought it was a good episode to use this on. But um, you know, we use our tool. You put the total volume in the tool. Then you ask them and say, so when you put the total volume in our tool, it gives you a approximate fees. Okay. So off of all the statements we have in our database, it says like, you know, a pizza shop doing 20000 a month has, you know, their fees are probably going to be around $623.10 or whatever. Uh-huh. So you just show them and say, well, you know, I, I went ahead and you pull the phone out and you say, you know, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to put this in, in here. I'm, we're recording the results of our survey so we have it. Yeah, they understand that. Sure. So you put that in, and then you're like, okay, um, now our system here is saying that for a pizza shop like yours doing 20000 a month, your total fees are probably around $623. Does that sound about right? So again, the wording is very important. Does that sound about right? They're usually going to say, no, I pay less, because they know what's happening. You right, know? Sure. And you're like, oh, how much less do you pay? It doesn't really matter. Um, and you get their, um, their number, and you put it in. If it doesn't sound realistic at all, of course, you know you want to challenge it a little bit, maybe ask them if they have a statement that, you, that they could look at. Um, but you put the, the amount in there, you hit create. So now you have a proposal for them that you can show them their, their savings. So at this point, you now have to take a step back and thank them for their time. They've completed the survey, right? Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Bill. Thanks for completing this uh, this survey. This really helps us out. We've gotten a lot of businesses that have that have helped us with this, and this is really good data. You know what I would like to do? If I could just send you the results of the survey and what we actually found for your business type, what's a good email address for you? So now, if again, uh-huh. if you're using our tool or something else, you know, put the email address in, email the proposal. Right. Now is where it gets really interesting. Now you can move into what I call the option selling. So with option selling, um, you know, one of the most important things in sales is that you never ask a yes or no question. You always ask a yes or yes question. Okay. So yes or yes, not yes or no. Very, very, very important. If your merchant is telling you no, it's because you asked them a question that they could say no to. Uh-huh. Oh. Uh-huh. Anyway, so... Uh, so the way you do that is really simple. You say, you know, you start talking to them about it a little bit and say, well, you know, um, again, we're launching this service as something that we have available right now. Um, let me just show you this real quick. I just emailed it to you, but let me show you real quick. So with cash discounting, we could save you $8,000 a year, you know, because you, or whatever it is, you know, because you wouldn't sure. be paying the fees. 
Then what you can do is click over to Interchange Plus, and again, with our tool, you just click back and forth, but you know, whatever, you maybe you have a printed proposal or whatever. You go back and say, now with if we did traditional processing, it looks like we could save you, you know, over the course of three years, we could save you $1,000. You know, you, you kind of have to go to the, the three years to make it sound significant sometimes. Right, right. But over three years, we could save you, you know, $1,000. So it looks like we could save you money either way, Obviously, the cash discounting would be great. And then you, you ask them a, a, an exploratory closing question. And this is the question. It goes something like this. You say, you know, say, well, and Mr. Jones, obviously, if you could save seven or $8,000 a year without upsetting your existing customers, obviously, that's something you'd want to do, right? Right. Great question to ask because now they're going to say yes to that or some semblance of it. If they say no to that question, you know you're you're not anywhere close to closing the deal. They don't trust you. They don't like you. There's some there's something going on. Right, right. <laughs> you ask they're that just question, trying to get rid of you. Exactly. Right. They don't even know what you're talking about at this point, probably. So if they usually they're going to say if they're somewhat engaged, they're going to say, well, yeah, of course that'd be great, you know. And you say, well, so here's a question for you. There's two different ways that we could take advantage of this market trend. You tell me which way you think would potentially, I'm not saying you know, today, but which way do you think would potentially be a better fit for you? Number one, what we could do is option number one, we could go ahead and set up the cash discount. And I'll give you both proposals. So you'll have my proposal for traditional processing where I'm saving you some money right. and the cash discounting. Now, hopefully you're part of that 95%. Where you know you're going to do this, your customers are maybe two or three are going to notice, but not a significant amount. Mm -hmm. You saved eight thousand dollars a year. I'm going to be your favorite person. You know, hopefully that's that's where we're at, right? But if that doesn't work, all you have to do after a day or a week or a month, just reach out to me and say, hey, James, I'm sorry, I'm in the five percent. This didn't work. I'll just flip a switch, put you back on traditional processing, same terminal and everything, and I'm still saving you money. So your you know, worst case scenario, you're saving money. So we could do that. Or if you're not comfortable with that yet, we could instead go ahead and bring the terminal in that we need for cash discounting, set you up on traditional processing, okay? But I'm going to send you a monthly newsletter email that kind of updates you. Hey, here's the other businesses that are doing it. Hopefully within a year or two, you know, Home Depot or JCPenney or Sears, one of the big companies will be surcharging or something. Mm -hmm. And that'll give you the air cover. So if you're not comfortable yet, though, I can go ahead and set it up, save you some money. Then whenever you're ready and you're like, okay, James, let's do it. We've already got everything in place. I flip a switch, turn the cash discounting on, and you're ready to go. So my question for you is, which of those two options would you be most comfortable moving forward with? So at this point, pretty tough for the merchant to say no to that. Right, right. So just wanted to share that with you. That's a survey pitch. It's been working really, really well. I've been sharing it with consulting clients, with uh, clients that do our six-week jumpstart program and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's been working really well. So take that. Um, I challenge to you as an as an agent or you know an ISO manager, take that pitch and test it out a little bit. You know, write it down, see if it works for you. Massage it, massage it according yeah, make to it your, your comfort own. level. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. There's your free pitch for the day. Hopefully that was a help. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.